are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are talking about the abuse of over-the-counter drugs. What is in your medicine cabinet? Right, Paula? All sorts of things can be lurking there. Yeah, and popular choices too. Really popular, especially amongst our folks, our folks who uh, have a substance use disorder and teenagers. Very much so. A couple ones that we're going to focus on today. So we're going to talk about dextromethorphan, lopiramide, pseudoephedrine, diphenhydramine, chlorpheniramine. Although there are more, but these are some of the more popular ones and the ones you really need to kind of watch out for and counsel your patients about. A little bit of the prevalence. So from the Monitoring the Future study, the -the over-the-counter cough and cold medicine, the 2020 results were in eighth graders the past year abuse over-the-counter medications was 4.6%. And then ninth graders, it's 3.3%. And 10th graders, about 3.2%. It's your younger kids. So it's a little bit interesting. It's your younger kids is your highest. And you kind of see this trend, right? They start experimenting with these things in your medicine cabinet. And then they're moving on to other things. So you see maybe this drop in some of the -the over-the-counter abuse reports of that, you're seeing that's when you see the increase in the use of other things. Yeah, it's definitely an access thing, I think. Access, cost, experimentation. But that's a really interesting statistics that statistic that 4.6% of eighth graders have used, you know, abused cold or cough medicine in 2020. That's quite a lot. One in 20. Yes, the other it is. Population we, yeah. The other people I see, well, we already talked about this. Obviously, this is an addiction medicine podcast. So we talk about people who are struggling with addiction, but the particular folks that I see struggling with this are people who have gained some kind of sobriety from their drug of choice. So say that they were using alcohol or opioids, they then slip into using an over-the-counter medication other than their original drug of choice because it feels safer or it's not quite relapse or return to use. So for example, we had a guy who was an opioid use disorder fellow. He was big into oxycodone and he was able to get sober and abstinent from opioids, but he began abusing diphenhydramine and it it got really out of control. And I think that's true too for loperamide. So I think there's there's a certain group that, that are particularly vulnerable to this. And then of course, people do use it in combination with drugs of abuse, like the stronger drugs. But I think because these are not as potent, we see it used in a kind of certain situations. So we need to be aware of it, like you said. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting because I have a patient that see them that this they weren't even sometimes stimulant abusers, but they kind of have gone from different substances that they've abused whether it's alcohol or opiates, but now they're abusing pseudoephedrine and you'll see things like that. But because it's over the counter, there's this perception, well, this is safer. And they kind of come back to us, Paul, like you said, they're just like, well, what's the big deal? So, and that's what we're going to talk about, why it's a big deal. And it does have some, you know, negative consequences and some significant 
health effects and even and life-threatening. It is a big deal. Okay, let's start with dextromethorphan. This one, street names that you'll kind of hear it, robo, robo-tripping, skittles, triple C. I've heard skittles, maybe robo. I don't know about, I don't think I've ever heard triple C. Do you hear that, Paula? I've never heard that. And I actually, I don't know why it would be called triple C. But I mean, often people will just say Robitussin. I mean, they just say, I just use the brand name and it's, it's all about just going on a trip with Robitussin, but yeah, or DXM, it's known as its acronym. Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting because I've heard I hear that more, and that was not listed. Okay, so the history of this and a lot of our information. This is coming from NIDA's website, and the history comes just from Wikipedia. But in 1973, this was originally produced as a cough syrup called Romilar, but this quickly took off, was taken off the shelves due to widespread abuse. So it was immediately recognized as a problem. There was an, an uptick of interest in the 1990s with the internet spread of the drug information sales, but some of the states like Oregon and California b- banned the use of over-the-counter sales to kids under 18 without a prescription, already recognizing that this is unsafe. But most places you're still getting easily, very easily accessible. Forms of this, typically you're seeing it sold as a syrup or a capsule, but it can be even in a pet, you can see a powder form. It's usually swallowed. The medical uses is typically as a cough or cold medication. Mechanism of action can be a bit blurry there, right? But the actual mechanism of action, it crosses the blood-brain barrier. It is a sigma-1 opiate agonist. That's where you're getting the cough suppression. And the other things that are interesting about it is this this affects multiple receptors. So very non-selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor you get in very high doses. And this is where I think we get a lot of the abuse that an MDMA antagonist. This is where we call kind of the four plateaus of abuse. First, you get the euphoria stimulation. Second, as you go up on the dose, euphoria and sedation, mild hallucinations, quote, kind of drunken high feeling. Third plateau, the dissociative feeling, kind of that NMDA antagonism. And then moving into your fourth, which is significant sedation, dissociative hallucinations. Some things they've kind of split it into the dosing three to three to ten times the normal dose stimulant. You get restlessness, insomnia, rapid speech, nausea, fifteen to seventy-five times the normal dose, which is that's a little disturbing to think that we're get we get people doing that, but it's happening. You that's where you get the sedative effect, dissociative hallucinogens, similar like type effects, nitrous and ketamine. And then when you get some of the this is definitely more the illicit uses which we're seeing, not necessarily over the counter, but this would be obtained over the internet from overseas. The psychoactive, some of the metabolites, dextrofan, which is a very potent NMDA antagonist. So does that make sense? Yeah. The, I mean, dextromethorphan is metabolized dextrofan and that's the psychoactive um, effect uh, chemical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what, that's what the potent NMDA an- antagonist is. And I think as you increase the dose and you reach that third and fourth plateau, you get higher, you know, more activity of dextrofan as, as dextromethorphan is metabolized. I think that's what it is. And you end up getting all these physiological and, and and neurological neuropsychiatric effect which is really interesting with the drug and it's a classic board question 
medication and they often will test people taking their addiction psychiatry or addiction medicine boards what dose causes what effects almost like alcohol you know when you see those tables of this amount of alcohol causes euphoria this amount causes stupor this amount causes coma this amount causes death it's the same with dextromethorphan you can kind of guess what the effect will be according to what dose people are taking and so users try and hit a certain plateau they are like they're going for that that dissociative effect or the hallucinations or just euphoria sedation effect according to how much they want to take and then of course they do develop some tolerance long-term or chronic users develop tolerance and then you end you end up taking a lot more than you used to need to when you first started using it yeah and then the pharmacodynamics the half-life depends on the compound but three to 12 hours on average and varies in people with cypd2 d6 deficiency end up with persistently high doses and for people taking other CYPD2 D6 inhibitors. So this is where it can get really concerning, like diphenhydramine, which this is, can be common, where it will be in common cold preparations or in tricyclic antidepressants is very common medications. Yeah, that's interesting to watch out for. You know, I wonder if I have this EYP2D6 deficiency because I took dextromethorphan when I was sick with some horrible virus and I just took like a normal dose and I swear I started having like perceptual, <laughs> I was like hallucinating just with one dose. It was awful. So I avoid dextromethorphan like the plague. I never take it because just with one dose of like 15 mils of typical over-the-counter combination nation I was like, I was seeing things move. It was, it was crazy. I, I think not even at high doses, some people can have a potentiated effect of this. And that must be the reason why. Isn't that, that's so fascinating, isn't that? But then that's, it's like you said before, we run into these patients that combine and they're maybe running into that. But this could also be a reason for people who could end up as with addiction, because like you said, they start with a normal dose and then immediately can get those effects. So those are things we really aware of. It makes sense of why we're really kind of looking at some of these that should be better regulated. And then we wonder why some of these are over the counter. Really, yeah, really concerning. Know, huh? Yeah. So some of the just typical physical, like some of the physical things, physical signs that you will see normal with your goal is obviously cough relief, then what typically our patients who are abusing them are, are seeking is initially euphoria. Then you'll see is slurred speech, increased heart rate, blood pressure, dizziness, nausea, vomiting. You can see breathing problems, obviously, when you get to those doses with sedation, seizures, thinking about back to that mechanism of action, increased also that can be coming from other ingredients in the cough medicine. So remembering that we get this co-use either intentionally or it's because these multi-cough and cold syrups and things that people are using. Withdrawal syndromes, it's a little bit interesting because can vary. Sometimes it can actually look a little like an opiate withdrawal picture and it can it's mixed, obviously, because you have many receptor involvement. Also looks a little bit like serotonin receptor antidepressant discontinuation syndrome, restlessness, fatigue, agitation. There's not a lot in the literature, but three of those have been reported. 
What have you seen in your practice? We just don't get a lot that, again, present with the withdrawal. A lot of them, it's sometimes episodic. I see significantly the fatigue effect when they're kind of coming down. What other things do you see, Paula? I've actually had quite a few patients admitted to the inpatient detox service, withdrawing from dextromethorphan. And when I say quite a few, they would pop up maybe one person a month or one every other month out of a pretty busy service. And I tell residents, and we'd always talk about it, that it's a real dirty withdrawal in terms of just lots of symptoms all mixed in the wash and people just feel pretty terrible, especially if their tolerance is very high. And I agree that it really does look a lot like an opioid withdrawal syndrome and you treat it as such, treat it with symptom targeted comfort medications and uh, you just have to kind of give them support as they go through it. They feel pretty agitated, anxious, sick to their stomach and um, just feel fatigued, like you said, lethargic, poor appetite. And it's, it's a bit of a guess as to what you need to use to help them, but I would just target their symptoms individually and watch. The other thing we had to watch out for when people are using dextromethorphan is to figure out, are they just taking straight dextromethorphan or are they taking combination product? And then what is the toxic effect of the combination product? So have they been taking something that has huge amounts of acetaminophen, in which case you want to check acetaminophen levels and LFTs, or are they drinking a cough syrup product that has a lot of alcohol in it? And then you actually need to account for some mild alcohol withdrawal. We had a patient who was drinking bottles, like bottles and bottles of dextromethorphan cough syrup day. And the alcohol content of cough syrup is very high. And so they ended up having, it was almost like drinking eight or 10 two ounce shot day, but just from the dextromethorphan product he was, he was taking. So he had even more than a dextromethorphan withdrawal syndrome. He actually had somewhat of an alcohol withdrawal syndrome as well. It was really interesting. So yeah, you see it every now and then and people who kind of go all in and they, they need some support and they really do feel terrible when they come off of it. Absolutely. Can be difficult. Great. Okay. Should we move on and talk about loperamide? Absolutely. You take it, Paula. Okay. So loperamide, everyone's favorite anti-diarrheal. I love this lope dope is what some what it's commonly or affectionately known as. The other thing I found it being called is poor man's methadone. And of course, this is why it's used is because of its opioid properties. The paramide or Imodium, as its brand name, it was actually created pharma- pharmacologically in 1969. And it's been used in the medical world since the mid 1970s. And you know, it's one of the most used medications in the world. And if you ask my Irish granny, she would agree. I mean, she can't go anywhere without her loperamide. And so it was originally approved for medical use in the US. Where, excuse me, when it was originally approved in the United States, it was actually considered a narcotic and it was scheduled as a category two drug. And then it was de-escalated to a schedule five drug in 1977. And then it was completely decontrolled in 1982. So it was scheduled for about, what is that, five years, which I think is fascinating that we now don't, it's not only not scheduled, it's not a prescription drug. And it really does have some dangers associated with it. So we talked about this at the beginning, but the typical user of loperamide, not user, but abuser and misuser demographic would typically be 
males in their late 20s and 30s, specifically those with an opioid use disorder or possibly those with other substance use disorders, probably downers like sedative type substance use disorders rather than people who prefer stimulants. Mostly, personally, clinically, I've seen this with people with a history of opioid use disorder, almost almost purely. So loperamide comes as a tablet or a capsule or a liquid. So it's it's swallowed as far as I know. I've never heard of anyone abusing it any other way. It doesn't happen. It's an antidiarrheal. That's its desired effect. And the way it works is it's a key glycoprotein and it acts on the mu opioid receptors in the mesenteric plexus of the gut and act to slow the gut down and reduce peristalsis. So it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It's supposed to only act locally, has poor GI absorption at low doses. However, if you exceed a certain dose and if you take it with a a P-glycoprotein inhibitor, then it easily crosses the blood-brain barrier and you have a whole different effect. So then you get opioid-like effect in the brain and that's when you get euphoria, respiratory suppression, cardiotoxicity, etc., and this is this is kind of the desired effect. You know, we have opioid receptor activity. If you increase the dose, you do cross that blood-brain barrier. And if you combine it with the glycoprotein inhibitors, which you may be wondering what those are, example is quinidine, then you end up absorbing emodium quite easily. There are some kind of quite alarming health group warnings about the abuse of loperamide. Most recently in 2019, AAFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians published a consumer health group warning about the abuse of loperamide saying that it was really a huge problem and we need to be aware of it because it is catastrophic in very high doses because of its cardiac effects. And it, what it does is prolong the QT syndrome. It also, is prolo- it also can prolong the QRS complex, which subsequently can lead to arrhythmia and death. So it's kind of a combination where it's a very accessible medication. It's, it's widely used and in high doses and and in combination with these kind of facilitating drugs, we can have these cardiotoxic effects and also respiratory suppressive effects as it acts on mu opioid receptors. And this is why people like to abuse it, because as it controls diarrhea symptoms in low doses and high doses, it produces similar euphoria to pure mu opioid agonists. It may lessen cravings and withdrawal symptoms of other drugs, actually. And we see people and you hear people about using really high doses of loperamide to offset withdrawal from heroin or prescription opioids. And I found on my service, detoxification service or medically managed withdrawal (laughs) service, that I had to put a limit on loperamide as a PRN standing order medication for people coming in and opioid withdrawal because they would just want to take massive doses of loperamide, probably because it actually helped their withdrawal syndrome, but also because it felt a lot like opioid intoxication. But unfortunately, it's dangerous and it causes severe constipation, causes abdominal pain, in high doses. People have loss of consciousness, dizziness, drowsiness, and actually you can have significant urinary retention, which has been known in some case studies to cause kidney. So it has some significant effects in intoxication and poisoning doses, and people take very high doses to achieve that, or they can just take slightly higher than usual doses depending on how tolerant they are to it. There is definitely a withdrawal syndrome from loperamide, so people who start 
start abusing loperamide and their tolerance goes up. And the withdrawal syndrome looks just like withdrawal from opioids. But as we know, and as you want a cheat sheet kind of a tip in terms of predicting any withdrawal syndrome from a drug, it's always the opposite of the effect the drug has. So obviously loperamide's desired effect is to control diarrhea, and it has other opioid effects like sedation, euphoria, and anxiolysis. In withdrawal, you see severe vomiting, diarrhea, anxiety, restlessness, dysphoria. How do you treat it? Well, you would treat it with supportive care, target the symptoms. You could use tapering doses of loperamide, or you could use enplanidine and other kinds of dual bulking agents, anti-peristaltic agents, and support the patient through their withdrawal syndrome. And that's that's pretty much loperamide. Do you do you have anything to add on on loperamide and your experience with loperamide in your patients, Darlene? That was really good, Paula. But I I think that's key that urinary retention and the kidney failure that that isn't uncommon. That does happen. So I think that's really important to point out. And that cardiac toxicity that this is really a dangerous drug. And so interesting, in just the last 40 years, this has gone from a Schedule II controlled drug to over-the-counter and with quite deleterious consequences. Right, right. So remember to check an EKG. Check an EKG on your patients who've been abusing loperamide or even your little old folk who are taking too much loperamide because of irritable bowel syndrome or they're worried about fecal incontinence. Be aware of that for them and make sure that they don't have multiple medications that could be widening their QRS or prolonging their QT. Absolutely. Yeah. Even an unintentional overuse can be really dangerous. Yeah. Pseudoephedrine. So a lot of this information comes from the International Journal of Molecular Science just from May of this year. And this was a article, Pseudoephedrine Benefits and Risks from just a little bit the history of pseudoephedrine. This is an alkaloid. So pseudoephedrine and ephedrine come from various species of ephedra. The most common sources of their extraction is the ephedra sinica, known as mawang, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. The history and use of ephedra products in medicine is, goes way back. So it was used in China for over 5,000 years and in the Middle East for over 2,000 years. Now, what we are most familiar with them is the stimulants and so-called energizer type agents, reducing appetite, increasing energy consumption, popular among bodybuilders, athletes, common abuse among kids. Pseudoephedrine is a pathomimetic drug and falls into the phentalamine and amphetamine chemical classes. A synthetic that was first characterized back in 1889 and it comes by German chemist Leidenberg and Olschlegel. That's where they isolated it from ephedra. Where we see usually pseudoephedrine is typically in tablets and capsules. Onset of action is usually 30 minutes and usually reaches its peak one to four hours extended release is going to usually be about twice as long. And what its typical uses is usually as a nasal and sinus decongestant. Mechanism of action, like I alluded to before, it's a sympathomimetic, indirectly stimulates alpha adrenergic receptors, and you're releasing endogenous norepinephrine. And then your other effects is similar to ephedrine, but weaker. So it has a lower ability to induce tachycardia and increase systolic blood pressure. Its central effect is weak than that of amphetamine, and its peripheral effect is similar to that of epinephrine. What we see is 
abuse is people are abusing a stimulant, wakefulness promoting, and in higher doses, obviously are most common, which is why we have restrictions is a precursor in the making of methamphetamine. So that is our most common abuse with it. The consequences of use, obviously we see urinary retention, insomnia, nervousness, anxiety, dizziness, excitability, along restlessness, the nausea, vomiting, headache, stomach pains. Then you can see the opposite effect with that, the difficulty breathing, all sorts of arrhythmias. Typically, a little bit about with the dosing, your maximum dosing for adults is 240 milligrams. Toxic effects not only occur for people with increased doses, but people who are particularly sensitive to sympathomimetic. And so many people are sensitive to that. So you don't even have to get past that max dose. Prolonged use, especially at short intervals, may reduce the effectiveness of the drug. This is the key. It increases the toxic effect, which is particularly dangerous about pseudoephedrine. And there can be this reaction is a depressive effect on the CNS. So you get that sedative type effect with apnea, decreased ability to concentrate, cyanosis, coma, and circulatory collapse. Other times you get, get the stimulating effect, the insomnia, the hallucinations, tremors, convulsions. Extreme cases, you death can occur. Symptoms of overdose also include dizziness, anxiety, the euphoria, ringing in the ears, blurred vision, difficulty walking, chest pain, sweating, and then children are more frequently observed as symptoms of dry mouth, wide and rigid pupils, hot flushes, fever, and digestive tract dysfunction. Sometimes a challenging drug to identify overdoses and toxic effect because you can have a patient who presents almost obtunded versus like a full-blown stimulant overdose can get both. So treatment again is supportive care similar to what we do to stimulants. Your ABCs monitoring them and your withdrawal again is just your stimulant withdrawal again profound fatigue anything else that you see yeah i have to admit i've never haven't come across this or people haven't admitted it anyway we have it as a restricted med pretty much in all of the programs i work i've worked in and the hospital occasionally patients would request it and i'd deny it so try and use other things to help them with congestion just because of the risk and people would seek it out but i haven't come across it i haven't treated it in an inpatient setting, which is fairly typical for stimulant use disorders. It's not common people present with it as a primary diagnosis. So I don't have a lot of clinical experience with pseudoephedrine abuse or use in terms of treating withdrawal syndrome. And I haven't seen intoxication syndromes. Um, and that's probably because we haven't, haven't worked in the ED for lots of years since residency. So our last one, Paula, diphenhydramine and chlorphenamine. Okay. Yeah. So basically first generation antihistamines, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, chlorpheniramine, which is, you know, known as chorocedin, or what's the other name for, for chlorpheniramine? I'm trying to remember what it is. Chlortrimeton is the other one, or tussinex penkytonic, penkinetic, that's what it is. Uh, I think we're all really familiar with diphenhydramine as a very commonly used medication in society, and actually pretty commonly abused too. So uh, the history of, di- of these first generation 
generation antihistamines, especially diphenhydramine. Uh, diphenhydramine was first made by chemist George Riefschel. We might, we've got to give a shout out, by the way, to German chemists. They were responsible for so many of our common drugs. And you, uh, in 1946 is when it was used commercially. So very old medication at this point, nearly you know 80 years old at this point. And interestingly, it's not the first anticholinergic drug. I mean, it's antihistamine and anticholinergic, but it's not the first anticholinergic and antihistamine to be abused. There was anticholinergic drugs in the 1970s, one particularly known as tripenylamine, which was a first-generation antihistamine. It was mixed with pantazosin, which was an opioid, and uh, people loved that for its euphoric effect. And it was known as the teas and blues. So maybe some of our patients who were who were swinging in the 70s know about the teas and blues. We'll have to ask them. Also, trihexylphenidyl, which is still prescribed for various things. We see it commonly used in kids for various um, complaints is also used throughout the time that it's been around. It's an old drug too for its hallucinogenic effect. Got to be aware of that. Epidemiology wise, in 2016, there was a study that showed that diphenhydramine overdoses actually make up about 3.2% of all drug overdose deaths in the US. So I, I was really alarmed to see that. And that data comes from, we have some sources on our webpage, but there was a there was a study or an article called Diphenhydramine Toxicity that was published in uh, May of 2021 by Hun and all in Pearls. It's from the National Institute of Health that talked about this epidemiological finding. Now, a lot of it, a lot of these drug overdose death from diphenhydramine were children. And that was accidental poisoning from accessing cough syrup. In the same study, diphenhydramine actually was ranked in the top 15 drugs most frequently involved in drug overdose deaths in the U.S. So You know, can I just say something, Paula? The chloramphenamine, that was my first introduction by a patient to abuse of over-the-counter medications. When I was doing my addiction training way back, oh, this would have been 2007, 2008, in the pediatric psych doing admissions. And I was just admitting, I think, an 11-year-old in the inpatient psych. And she's, you know, you ask about substance use and she's like, well, just red devils. And I didn't know what it was at the time. <laughs> I had to go look it up, <laughs> which is chlorphenamine. They call chorocetin. Red devils was the term at the time. I was just astounded at her dismissive because it's exactly what you said when you talk about that overdose death, you know, and particularly children. But that's including these kids, like these elementary school kids, we think about toddlers when we think of these accidental overdose. We also have these school age kids and junior high kids that are using and then accidentally overdosing, which, which is really alarming. Yeah, it is. And it's really terrible. It's sad. I mean, what a terrible thing. We would never want to lose anybody for a drug overdose, but especially an accidental poisoning with a child. So these medications locked up for sure. I mean, you have these medications in your homes and our patients use them for allergic reactions or urisome symptoms. Benadryl or diphenhydramine also used for insomnia. Some people use that kind of obviously off-label and it can be helpful for nausea. I know hospice people will use it as one of the tricks in their toolbox and psychiatry know this medication well. It's helpfulness for treating extrapyramidal symptoms and akathisia. It comes in lots of different forms. You can get it oral, orally, topically, IV, and it's abused rectally. And that was my first introduction to it in terms of a patient that I had 
had who was using a mixture of buprenorphine and Benadryl and diphenhydramine. And that method of abuse, by the way, for those of you who don't know, is called plugging. And he was he described it as being a really like fantastic high. He he said it was a great um, one of his it became his drug of choice, that combination. So I thought that was really interesting. And we'll talk about why it's so rewarding. We talked about the fact that it's a first generation antihistamine. It's also an ethanolamine, very anticholinergic. So this is where we run into some of the problems with it in toxic doses. It's anticholinergic effect. Some of the problems too associated with diphenhydramine, especially is it's very lipophilic. So obviously with lipophilic drugs, they easily cross the blood-brain barrier. So you get good access to the CNS, which is where we want to get these effects. And I think we see this all the time in addiction medicine, where folks are trying to access you know, drugs that are over the counter, not their drug of choice, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, just to feel something. And so they'll request Benadryl, Seroquel, Sudafed, Loperamide, just to feel something, something that hits the CNS. It has a long half-life. It's hepatically metabolized, depending on what's going on with people livers, people's liver. It can be variable, but half-life for adults is about nine hours and it's different um, for different aged folks. At much longer half-life for older people, and this is why diphenhydramine and other first-generation antihistamines are one of the reasons why they're contraindicated in geriatric patients and they, they make the beers list criteria, right? When we look at diphenhydramine, why it's misused and abused and what the medical consequences are, the desired effect to, when, when one abuses or takes diphenhydramine for an effect is euphoria and elevated mood. It can also cause elevated increased energy in some folks. It has a paradoxical effect. And I think all of us know or have heard of kids who have this paradoxical effect to diphenhydramine. And this may be unfortunately found out by parents who give their children diphenhydramine on a flight, hoping to sedate them. And then the kids are bouncing off the airplane ceiling. And by the way, that is highly disadvised by the American Academy of Pediatrics when I'm to drug your children when you're flying. <laughs> Apparently it is not okay to drug children for parents' convenience. Also sedation, just taking drug just to be sedated is um, a form of misuse. Commonly abused because it does increase dopaminergic activity in the mesolimbic pathways. When you think of any drug of abuse, think of the mesolimbic pathway. When you have these rewarding pathways that increase any kind of salient um, activity in that part of the brain, increases motivation and learning and and um, repeat seeking of that medication. The exact mechanism is unknown, but we think it has some complex interplay between the cholinergic and the dopaminergic symptoms in different parts of the CNS, not only the mesolimbic pathway, but also the frontal cortex and then the basal ganglia. And I think that's probably why psychiatrists use this to treat extrapyramidal symptoms and akesthesia must be its activity in the basal ganglia. So like a lot of these over the counter drugs that kind of have plateaus. So at a certain dose, it has this effect. And then as you increase the dose, it has it has increasing or differing effects. Diphenhydramine has, at, at low doses, it causes dry mouth and throat. That's the anticholinergic effect. And as you increase the dose, you get more of these drastic anticholinergic effects, including tachycardia, pupillary dilatation, extreme urinary retention, and constipation. And then you actually end up running into hallucinations and delirium at doses of about 300 to 700 milligrams. And I have to say, I've seen quite a few of our patients taking doses of 300 milligrams. I remember 
remember I had a lady in my primary care practice who was obsessed with diphenhydramine. And now I look back on it, I didn't recognize it as a use disorder, but I think she really qualified. She would not stop taking it. She used it for sleep and she said she had started taking 25 to 50 milligrams and then it it had just escalated and she was taking about three or 400 milligrams a night just to get to sleep and stay asleep. And I think it made her feel really loopy as well and she liked other things that you'll see um, if people have an intoxication syndrome from diphenhydramine or chlorpheniramine is ataxia, flushed skin. They might have cycloplegia, so they'll complain of blurred vision or photophobia, and then they could be very sedated and actually have seizures or be completely comatose. Unfortunately, because of H1 receptors in different parts of the brain, you can get respiratory sedation as well. And that's because of just a kind of overriding the breathe to drive. And you have muscarinic um, receptor effects because of the anticholinergic effect of the drug, which cause widening of the QRS complex in the heart and QT prolongation, unfortunately, similar to loperamide. And this is probably where you see overdose fatality with diphenhydramine is a combination of H1 receptor activity in the brainstem, so the pons and hippocampus, and especially the brainstem, I guess, so respiratory suppression, and then QT prolongation and QRS widening, so you get arrhythmia. And so it is not a benign drug. So think Benadryl intoxication can be very, very dangerous. And there's a very interesting case report article from the journal Neurology, and it's called Chronic Diphenhydramine Abuse and Withdrawal, a Diagnostic Challenge. I encourage you to read it. It describes a patient who presented basically with seizure activity and a tunded and comatose and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with this patient. And they gave a diagnostic dose of Benadryl. They were in intoxication withdrawal. They gave a diagnostic dose of Benadryl as the patient moved from intoxication into withdrawal. And the patient actually went back into an intoxication state and they diagnosed diphenhydramine intoxication and tolerance. It was It's a fascinating article. You treat an intoxication syndrome symptomatically with comfort medications and of course escalate and treat them like a trauma patient, like you would with pseudoephedrine intoxication or loperamide intoxication. And the withdrawal syndrome can can be really significant. It's again, opposite to the drug intoxication syndrome. And it lasts about a week or longer, commonly longer because the half-life of the drug is, you know, nine to 18 hours, depending on how old you are and what your, your liver is like. But quite quickly, people will develop, you know, myalgias, anxiety, rhinorrhea, diarrhea, palpitations, and um, continue to feel pretty rotten as they're coming off of it. And it just drives them to go back to wanting to use it. Oh, and of course, insomnia too. That one case report, actually, they treated this patient with diphenhydramine abuse and intoxication with tapering doses of diphenhydramine in the ICU. So I thought that was interesting. And they used a clonidine patch. I had a patient who was abusing diphenhydramine. She was, she had gotten uh, treated for benzodiazepine and opioid use disorders, had gone to residential treatment, was trying really hard to stay on track and started taking Benadryl at night to sleep and found that it made her feel kind of loopy and floaty, especially if she took two or three and then two or three weren't enough. 
enough and it went on and on. And it was really difficult to get her off of that, actually. I tried to do it in the outpatient setting and couldn't. Um, she just couldn't stop using it. Basically, she had compulsive use and out of control use and cravings. So there you go, the three C's of addiction. And so we ended up readmitting her back for a brief stay for detox and then referred her to a residential treatment program to kind of get her back on track, give her lots of support. So there you go. That is a whirlwind tour of diphenhydramine and its cousin's first generation antihistamines. So, you know, in summary, I would really caution you, well, I'd advise you to screen for over-the-counter abuse in your adolescent patients and in patients with a known substance use disorder, especially those with opioid use disorder. Check for loperamide and diphenhydramine use disorder or abuse and dextromethorphan use as well, actually. And then, of course, Sudafed is, is a risky substance for people with a history of stimulant use. No one's really immune. And especially with our patients with substance use disorder, you want to have these medications on your list of substances to review and ask about specifically in your history. And you could throw them in the other category. And I normally just, as part of my history, after we've gone through opioids, sedatives, alcohol, cannabis, stimulants, steroids, I say, you know, club drugs, I say, what about anything else? Any over-the-counter medications that you've been overusing or abusing, anything you've used in the past, just so that you open that door so that you can discuss and be aware and, and be able to treat them medically. Yeah, so that's absolutely. I think that's great. It's important to ask because a lot of them don't think they don't think it's a problem. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, your advice to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.